Hello, welcome to this, the third episode of our Keywords podcast. I'm Helen Challoner from Literature Works, and it's our pleasure to be working in partnership with Exeter Canal and Key Trust at the historic Exeter Custom House on a programme of literature called Keywords, which is aimed at developing the lovely building as a hub for literature in all its many forms, as a very flexible and democratic art form. And as part of our programme, we're doing these podcasts where we are talking to the writers that are involved in Keywords. Uh, and we decided that we would have two themes. One would be um, my reading life, a conversation about that. And the other would be my writing journey, a conversation about that. And it's been an absolute privilege to have had Patrick Gale, um, renowned novelist who lives in Cornwall, um, as our writer in residence for Keywords this autumn. Um, Patrick may touch on the way that that residency in the actual building has sadly been curtailed, but we're continuing online. Um, but we invited Patrick in today to talk to us about his writing journey. Uh, Patrick is a novelist and screenwriter. His screenwriting debut, Man in an Orange Shirt, uh, was part of BBC's Gay Britannia season in 2017. Um, he's the author of either 17, 18 or 19 novels, he will, he will uh, correct me, uh, which have been hugely popular, prize winning. And his most recent Take Nothing With You is um, set partly in the southwest. And he writes often about Cornwall, where he lives. So without rambling any further, welcome, Patrick. Um, you're going to talk to us about your writing journey. Uh, this is a bit of a loaded question, given the current circumstances. But, but have you made any journeys today? Um, I've walked across the garden a couple of times. That's about it. I'm, I'm very lucky where I write at home. It's a beautiful space. It, it's a, a shed. Well, I call it the Richard and Judy shed because it was built with earnings I got from having one of my novels selected for the Richard and Judy book club back when that was a really big thing on television. And it's a lovely old stone building that used to house the bull, the family bull. So I think of it as being big businesses shared as well. Um, and it's very quiet because it's lined with oak and it has a view across the garden, but not too busy a view. So I, I, it's very soothing to sit in. The big danger is I fall asleep when I get out here because my chair is so comfortable. Um, but I think it's very useful for writers who work from home, as I do, to have a place that is purely for work so you can go to it rather than the way people go to their offices. It, it's very hard otherwise to focus your mind down onto the writing and get away from all the household chores, which otherwise would grab your attention it's all too easy to get distracted and feel oh I must just make some bread or wash the fridge or whatever um, so yeah I'm out of my office now you clearly have broadband in your office though and uh, do you not find that um, the online world and social media can be a distraction for writers I think can't they <laughs> yes hugely <laughs> it can be a huge distraction and I am very not a disciplined person. So I quite often will try to leave my mobile phone in the house so that I can't glance at that. Um, 
it then becomes a bit of a treat. I try to treat it like a treat. You know, when I go in for a cup of coffee mid-morning, I can check my emails and look at the phone for a bit, and then I leave it back there in the house. If I bring it out here, which I do have to do sometimes because I'm expecting a call, um, it's very hard. I find myself looking at kittens in fancy dress and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Um, the other great distraction, of course, is research. Um, like most writers, I, I, I'm very insecure about what I know. So I'm always checking facts. And online is the quickest way of checking them. And once you're online, it's terribly easy then to start going down a rabbit hole about whatever it is. So, so a couple of months ago, for instance, I was writing about TB in my novel. And I found myself looking at endless pictures of portable spittoons. Because oh. <laughs> I had to find, I decided I had to find the very spittoon that my hero's father would have in his pocket. Things like that can be very distracting. So um, I, my, my main cure for that is to write in ink. So when I'm doing the first draft of a novel, it's entirely in ink in a notebook. So I don't even have the computer turned on. That's very pure. It's very pure and I recommend it hugely. <laughs> okay. I think you're in great company there, aren't you? Because there, are, I know of a few writers who always write or wrote longhand. Ted Hughes springs to mind. Well, yes, but also there's a great resurgence. It's very interesting. I think if you talk to writers in their 20s, an awful lot of them are simultaneously turning their backs on social media because they've decided it's an evil thing. Um, and they're also picking up notebooks and pens again. I think people are beginning to realise there's a kind of fertility, a very good sort of imaginative, imagination prompter in holding a pen and having a blank piece of paper that can't be replicated electronically. Oh, very interesting. So when did you first know that you wanted to write? It's a difficult question because I, I first knew I could write when I was very young indeed, when I was about seven or eight, I discovered I had a facility. Um, I, I didn't seem to have the same mental blocks that the other boys in my class had. Um, and I think that went hand in hand with being a bookworm. I read and read and read. From the mo I learned to read very young. And then writing and reading ever since have been a sort of circle in my head. I, I, I don't really separate the two. Um, but Although I knew it was possible to become a writer when you grew up, I didn't imagine that's what I was going to do. I, I thought I was going to be a musician, and then I thought I was going to be an actor. And I think by this point, my poor parents were despairing of me ever wanting to do anything that made money. Um, <laughs> but I think they thought I was going to be a priest at one point. And then I became a writer really by accident in my early 20s. I was still trying to be an actor, and I wrote my first novel largely to amuse myself. And um, a friend of mine who was also trying to become an actor was working for a literary agency. And she read this first novel and without telling me, she slipped it onto the pile of reading that her boss was taking home for the weekend. And her then boss is still my agent to this day. So it was a, a very good friendship, very lucky friendship. Okay. Yeah, that does sound lucky. Do, do you think, I know because it, it features a lot in your writing, your love of music, and the cello in particular, which you play. Um, would you have been a writer without the music, do you think? Oh, that's very interesting. I, 
I think I probably would. I might have taken a different journey. I might well have become an actor. Um, and, and like quite a few novelists, like um, Rachel Joyce or Sarah Winman, for instance, I might have worked as an actor for quite a while and then started writing. Um, I think the, the bottom line, which you find in a lot of writers' lives, is in their early life, in their childhood especially, there's a sense that they, they need an audience, that they have something to say and they're going to perform. But it takes different forms. So at the moment, I'm writing about the great Cornish poet Charles Causley, for instance. Now, Charles was a very good pianist as a child um, and not a particularly good writer. So music was very much his outlet. And then he started to write plays in his late teens, um, pretty terrible plays. But it, again, it was very much about being a performer and having an audience. And then the poetry came later. So I, I think it's almost as if all these different ways of performing are like metaphors for the writer who is yet to find their place, yet to find their audience. Well, that's so interesting because we talk often about how writing can be quite a solitary occupation and how it's just the writer and the page. I know that doesn't apply necessarily to writing for performance or theatre, but for novels and poems, I'd never really considered that. I mean, yes, there's an audience, but the performance element of it, that is really interesting. Yeah, and actually, increasingly now, writing requires you to perform. I mean, the, the, the huge music festival industry we have in this country and the thriving talking books industry um, put a lot of pressure on writers to be able to perform their work. And poets uh, are constantly arguing about this, about the difference between performance poetry and printed poetry, as it were. Um, but I think the same is true for, for novels as well. We are expected to perform our work. I, I've recorded all my own talking books now. Um, and for me, that feels very natural because when I'm writing, I am performing in my head. I, I hear voices and I put them down on the page. It must have been very enjoyable then to do, to record those you know, it was a kind of torture because, of course, it meant I was rereading books I hadn't looked at for 20 or 30 years. Oh, no, you weren't trying to copy edit them as you went, were you? <laughs> oh, I was desperate. Yes. And actually, in every case, I, my poor editor got sent a long list of typos from me, of errors that had crept into the printed editions, which nobody had noticed. And I hadn't noticed because I hadn't reread the books since then. I think probably for a lot of writers, there's a big journey from that first novel being published, which is significant, huge, to deciding that you can be professional and make a living as a writer. Did, did Was there a moment there for you? Yes. I mean, uh, by talking, you know, the, the early 1980, well, it was 1986, my first two books were published, and I was paid so little money for them. I think I got two and a half thousand pounds per book. So I couldn't have lived off that. Um, I, I could, that would barely have covered the rent on my bedsit. So I was doing other things. But it, it, I think it's psychological. The moment I had signed a contract with a grown up publisher, I felt I could put on my passport writer as a profession. And that's a big deal. It's a huge deal, I think. And when I when I used to teach writing courses for the Arvon Foundation, it was a kind of rule, an in-house rule at Arvon, that there were no students, that the moment 
anyone arrived on one of those courses, they were a writer. And I, I think I think it's very important because a lot of us, when we're starting out, we have these huge blocks we put in our own way. Um, imposter syndrome is a is an ongoing thing. I mean, I still have imposter syndrome, and I'm in my late fifties, and I've been writing all my life. Um, it, it's a big thing to overcome, and a lot of it is to do with labels and deciding, yes, I'm a professional now. I mean, I know a lot of painters and musicians who would not describe themselves as professionals, even though they regularly either play in concerts for which they are paid or exhibit work in galleries which sells, but they still don't think of themselves as professional. I wonder sometimes if it's a very British reserve that we feel it's, we mustn't show off, we mustn't push ourselves forward, and so we, we hesitate before daring to call ourselves professional writers. It's a, it's a funny one. And a lot of us, a lot of us like me, when we start out, we do a lot of journalism um, because somehow that's more bread and butter. You get paid very quickly and you, you, you can really pay the bills by writing articles and reviews and so on. And you'll have your, your secret passion, which is writing your novels or your poems in the background. And very gradually that then becomes your main source of income. You reviewed books, is that right? I did. I mean, then as now, it paid very little. But it's a very good way for a writer to get their name out there. Um, Because at the end of every review, you could insist that the newspaper says, Patrick Gale's latest novel is Kansas in August or whatever. Uh, It just quietly gets your name out there. And it also helps you to network because, of course, you then start being invited to launch parties and to book festivals and you meet other writers that way. And there is a sort of unofficial network of writers out there and we we help each other along. I got enormous help from established writers when I was starting out, not least by being handed commissions to write pieces for magazines and so on. So I try to do the same now for for young writers. That segues into my next question, which was, um, What's been the most encouraging step along your journey so far? Perhaps it was something that another writer did for you. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I think I think in some ways the most encouraging moment, the kind of breakthrough moment, was quite a long way into my career in about 2000, so 20 years ago now. But that was when my novel Rough Music came out. And that was the first time I'd written a book which actually made my publishers money. So I'd been I'd made money out of my previous ones, but none of them had earned out their advances. So I'd been paid an advance for each book, and that was basically it. But then suddenly, with Rough Music, I had a novel which became a bestseller, and it was being sold in Sainsbury's and Tesco's and all these places you don't think of as bookshops. And suddenly, I was getting contact with people in my publishers who hadn't bothered with me before then. So I I was actually meeting people from the marketing department who wouldn't have crossed the room to say hello before. Um, So that was a real turning point. If I hadn't felt like a professional writer until that point, I really did then. And I, I suddenly began to feel I had some power and I wasn't totally passive. I could actually turn around and make some demands, which is a a wonderful moment. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. And it sounds like a real um, staging staging post in the journey to to where you are now. Um, so when you had some say, did it involve the covers of your books by any chance? 
It did. Yes, cover, cover, covers of books are always uh, a tricky one. I used to work in publishing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You've been there. You've been there. And, and the, the truism is that the author always is the last to know. They often have the least good ideas about jacket design and so on. But I think once you're pretty established, you're meeting a lot of booksellers and booksellers know a hell of a lot about what sells and what doesn't. And I've always listened to booksellers. And if a bookseller came up to me and said, this jacket on this book is a disaster, I would really pay attention. Um, So when Rough Music came out, I think that was the time when my publishers decided, okay, we need to re-jacket all his backlist. And they did a big rebranding exercise, um, which I'd never really had done before. And that was quite quite an eye-opener, because I think by that point there were, there were about 12 books. And seeing them all um, given new jackets and, and put out there in a sort of matching edition was very exciting. And of course, almost immediately, I then had the terrible frustration of hardly ever seeing all the books together in any one shop, because of course, shops have limited space. And it's usually only if you're doing an event in a shop that the bookseller will dutifully order in all your backlist. Usually you'll only have four or five of the titles on display. They look very lovely. We had some of them on our bookshelf at Exeter Custom House a couple of weeks ago. Instantly recognisable look, definitely. That is, yes. Well, I've been rebranded again since then because I I changed publisher, um, which was a big deal for me. I stayed with HarperCollins for getting on for 20 years. And then with a place called Winter, I moved to Tinder Press. And of course, the first thing Tinder did was to bring that novel out and when it worked well they then bless them um made a big offer to harper collins and bought out all my backlist and reissued them in their own editions and already i'm looking at them and thinking oh these these look absolutely lovely but of course they don't all fit because <laughs> the trouble is you bring out a new book and the publishers design a new jacket and it doesn't automatically fit with the established look so it's not as you know from your publishing experience it's an ongoing organic process and you have to be fairly relaxed about it but you also have to be prepared to kind of um, alert your publisher when you think the time has come to refresh the look and that's a very interesting point about booksellers and their knowledge and their 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 expertise because it's so true isn't it very true and i think i think a lot of booksellers these days are frustrated because they don't often get to meet the sales reps as much as they used to because so much has gone online now um so that chance for them to give feedback is is interestingly a lot of the feedback is now coming through the authors rather than through the sales reps have you ever been close to giving up and if you and what made you change your mind if that did happen touch wood i'm touching my big oak desk i've i've never come close to giving up yet Though I have to say, there's a point when I, with each novel, usually halfway through the first draft, where I start to think there has to be an easier way to make a living. Um, I do, it gets harder, not easier. And, you know, I'm not getting any younger. Um, But I know once I finish the first draft, the buzz is unbeatable. And that's what, that's what keeps me going. Um, Though I do, I do change direction now and then. So my screenwriting has been a really lovely way of um, flexing my writing muscle in a very different way. It's much more collaborative when you're writing for a screen project and it gets me out of the house. <laughs> um, but also the writing itself is 
far more disciplined. You you have a very very finite word count and minute count, and everything about it is is very focused. So it's really good for for a novelist who's used to having unlimited time and unlimited budget, if you like, to to have to work within really tight parameters. I think. Yeah, it does. It must be so different. It really must be. Um, yes. So um, then back to your journey. Um, what brought you to Key Words this autumn season 2020? Pure impulse. I, I knew about the lovely Customs House, having done a, a one-off event there um, when my last novel came out. Um, it's an absolutely stunning building. And I remember at the time you showed me around and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if they had a little flat up in the attic here? It would be a, a writer's paradise. And I know you don't have that yet. But then at the end of this, or towards the end of this pretty hideous year we've all had, um, I was feeling a bit stir crazy. And I was having to go to Exeter quite regularly anyway to do research for my novel about Charles Causley, because the Causley archive is held at Exeter University. Um, and I saw you were advertising this writer's residency, and I thought, actually, that would be a really lovely way of energising my writing process, just to get out there and, and you know, do some of the other stuff. So talking to other writers, talking to, to novelists whose work I admire and so on. Um, and it, it's, it, as you know, of course, the process has been curtailed rather, but we always knew because of COVID that the events that I'm pulling together with you would have to be online. Um, and so the only thing really that's changed is I won't be sitting in the lovely custom house doing writing. But we fully expect you to be writing about the experience of not being able to do the residency in some incredibly creative way. Well, uh, yes, I think I think what I'm probably going to end up doing is writing writing an essay for you about writing spaces and different writing spaces I've known, because it does interest me. And writers get into such funny habits about where they like to write. And the idea of a residency is a very interesting one because it's an artificial construct, the idea of going to a different place in order to do your writing. Um, but it can be hugely rewarding and very productive as well, because, of course, the key thing is you're taken away from all your usual distractions. So you can't wash the fridge, you can't weed the garden, you can't make the beds. All you can do is write and stare out of the window. Yeah, and 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 you. I should say that you are you brilliantly. You sort of shaped your residency partly around inviting other writers to come and take part in events with you, and conversations, which has been much to the benefit of key words. Oh well, I hope so. And for me, as I said, I mean that half the reason for applying for the residency was to to re-energise my own writing practice. And the way I would normally do that is going to book festivals because the, the public go to book festivals to, to, to buy books and to hear authors talk. But authors partly go to book festivals to meet other authors because we don't tend to meet each other otherwise. We're off in our separate little cells around the country writing. So getting getting my old friend Ella Bertoud along was absolutely lovely just to talk to her about the importance of, of reading and then my next conversation, of course, is with Sally Vickers. And I want to talk to Sally about the, the psychology of writing and what makes us write, because um, I, for one, am full of questions I want to ask her about that. Yes, because she's a writer, a novelist and a psychotherapist, I believe, isn't she? 
Uh, yes, well, she's a, a full-blown Jungian analyst, yes. So, um, And she has written about it occasionally, though she's very interesting on the the whole subject of fiction and psychiatry and how, of course, a lot of Freud's theories are basically, they're based on stories. They're based on things like the Oedipus myth and the Jocasta myth. And one wonders sometimes whether he actually made an awful lot of it up so maybe some of his case histories are also fiction. Um, and Sally always says that she learned far more about psychology from reading fiction than she got from reading Jung or Freud. So tune, tune in in a couple of weeks to find out more. Yeah. OK. Oh, I look forward to that. That's the 18th of November, isn't it? That would be live streaming at 6.30. But before that, we have you reading from your own work um, and it's called Patrick Gale is perfectly well but because we have a well-being theme for the season and that's Wednesday the 11th at 6 30. Yes 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 I want to I'm going to be talking about mental illness and mental instability in my work um, and just touching I think towards the end of the session on my pet theory which is that an awful lot of people who write fiction are mildly mentally ill and that our our urge to write fiction is an outlet. It's our sort of personal therapy. Because I know a lot of writers I've spoken to say that if they don't write for whatever reason, they get depressed. They, get, they go downhill. They get very hard to live with. And writing is what keeps them on an even keel. And that's not a normal thing. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Otherwise, there'd be, there'd be too much competition. But it, it does interest me. So um, I, I think one of the reasons I've... I've write a lot about mental illness in my work is that I'm constantly checking myself um, for symptoms and uh, you know, checking I'm, I'm on an even keel or not. Well, we must tune in to find out more, definitely. Um, and anybody who wants to see the Keywords programme, it's exetercustomhouse.org.uk. And it's Custom House Singular, uh, which is um, not necessarily what people expect. So I just wondered, Patrick, um, before we sign off, whether you have any tips for writers who are at the start or near the beginning of their writing journey? Yes, I think there, there are several bits of advice I'd give. One, one of them is to try my pen and ink technique. It may feel really unnatural. I know a lot of you find writing anything longer than a check really hard work but do give it a whirl even if it's only one day a week try just picking up a, you can find a lovely notebook a notebook you really like holding one ideally with a bookmark built into it and a nice pen and just see where that takes you and if I'm right it will get you into a very strong place very quickly and it's a lot less distracting and a lot less depressing than looking at a blank computer screen or even worse, looking at kittens in fancy dress. So I, I give that advice. I also would say, don't panic that you haven't found your voice yet. If you haven't found your voice, it's because you haven't just haven't written enough. And sometimes it takes two or three or four novels before you really know who you are. Um, and I say this with confidence, having, as I said earlier, recently had to record all the audiobooks of my work. And when I read my very earliest novels, I, I was quite startled at how different they are to what I'm writing now. And I realised I, I was finding my way and I was just lucky to be able to do it 
um, in public, as it were, um, though I would quite like to remove some of those books from circulation now. Um, I'd also say keep reading. It, it does amaze me how many times I've spoken to writing students and they they don't seem to read very much. And I think, well, I only learnt how to write by reading. So how on earth are you learning? You, you can't learn just by doing it. You have to read. And the trick is to get into the habit of reading critically. Um, I don't mean critically in that, you know, disliking what you're reading, but analytically. So when you read an, a chapter that's just amazing, don't just rush on to the next chapter. Have a little pause, go back and see if you can see under the bonnet. See if you can work out how the writer did what they just did. It's It's a very interesting thing because when you're when you're reading you are if the book's any good you're deeply involved emotionally and you're probably not very involved consciously as a writer so that what you need to do is to get into the habit of reading like a writer so kind of be aware all the time of if you're being manipulated or why you are being made to feel the thing you are now feeling and how did they do it and i can think of some astonishing writers, um, Anne Tyler and Sue Miller are both very good examples from America, who have so perfected their, their writing technique that it's very, very hard to see how they get their effects. Um, you, you're just lost in the story and you have to look really hard to work out how they did what they did. Thank you, Patrick. That is fantastic. And obviously music to our ears because... At Literature Works, we love writing and we love reading as well. So um, thank you so much. Um, and as we said, it's extracustomhouse.org.uk for more information about what we're doing at Keywords over the next two years.